If you travel for work, you know to pack two suits, business and swim. You know with your Delta SkyMiles business Amex card, buying that plane ticket for a business trip can get you closer to medallion status. You know that a meeting in Montana means visiting almost every national park. Yellowstone? Check. Because you're the chief excursion officer. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know business. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast where we explore where science and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. When Elon Musk bought Twitter, I have to say I was a little bit skeptical to understand where his vision might take my beloved social media platform. And there were a number of changes that he made that were kind of alarming to me and and not aligned with the direction that I had hoped Twitter would go in. So I took a bit of a hiatus from Twitter and like probably a lot of you tried out a bunch of other social media platforms and still haven't found the right replacement. But I have been fascinated at how these different social media platforms have started to evolve and change. And I'm not really sure what the future holds. So I was excited when I discovered Kurt Wagner's book, The Battle for the Bird, because at least I thought, well, that'll give me some history and a sense of how Twitter rose to such popularity and why I personally liked it so much as my social media platform of choice. And boy, was I wrong about so many things regarding Twitter. From like the first chapter, I realized that I really knew nothing. (laughs) So I'm super excited to bring you Kurt Wagner, who's an award-winning business and technology journalist covering social media for Bloomberg and other outlets. Kurt Wagner, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm excited to, uh, to chat about the book. So let's start from the beginning because I thought I knew the whole Jack Dorsey story and I had a lot of affection for the at Jack persona on Twitter. And it turns out I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go from the beginning. Like, you know, I think, I think a lot of us probably know the story of Jack and Bistone and maybe even Ev Williams of like, they got together, they had this idea that they had on a, you know, like a cocktail napkin, presumably, obviously not, but that's the, you know, yep, yep. The, the, the sort of type of story. And they launched this thing. And then Jack became an unwitting CEO, didn't really want to do it, but, you know, was the best person for the job. So how wrong is that? Yeah. <laughs> Let's start from there. That's not that far off. I think this idea started, the best way that I've been able to describe it is like, Imagine the AOL instant messenger away message, right? This is sort of what the idea was built on was like, how do you give people a status update when you're on the go, right? For AOL, you were kind of, you know, probably tied to your your computer sitting in your living room or something. And the idea was, can we do this mobile? And, uh, you know, they hit on something big, obviously, right? But I think, you know, as you point out, like Jack Dorsey was not at a place, both personally and professionally, to run a company like this at that time. You know, he was pretty uh, distracted, quite frankly. Like Jack is an artist first and foremost. And like, he just has so many interests that are, you know, sort of outside of the world of 
tech. And so I think the first go around when he took over, you know, there's parts of the book and, and I'm really, you know, I, I go over it kind of quickly, as you know, because I, there's so much other stuff, but Hatching Twitter, uh, another book about Twitter by Nick Bilton really gets into it. But, you know, Jack was just like not prepared to be a CEO at this point in stage. And uh, yeah, yeah, he was booted from the company, which I, I think is important to remember, though, because that sort of plays a, a role in his kind of relationship with Twitter later on. Yeah, I mean, the two things that stand out, you describe how, you know, he was doing the expenses for the company on his laptop. Yeah, yeah. And wrongly, uh, uh, incorrectly, apparently. Incorrectly. Well. Yeah, not, 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 not the best at the math. And then also he would often go to sewing class as sewing class to taking yeah. care of the company. I think we can relate, you know. Yeah, he he had this thing about um, he's really into fashion, and so he had this idea that he wanted to make his own jeans as well. And this like it was jeans, but also he had like a fascination with leather, and he was like he liked leather because it it told a story, like you could see the scars on the leather mm-hmm. from, you know, the, the life that the leather had lived. It's, it, you know, this is just like very Jack, right? Like he is, an, he, like I said, he's an artist. He's, he's someone who's not your maybe typical tech programmer in that way, which is, I think is a really cool part about him and, and how Twitter got started. But it's also a very telling part in, because it, it sort of plays a role in his relationship with the company. Yeah. And, and the other thing that surprised me was that you sort of describe how he didn't, he, he actually thinks that the original sin, the colossal mistake was trying to make it a profitable company rather than yeah. like essentially like a platform or a, an opportunity for people to use code and, and apply it. Yeah, I think in a perfect world to him, Twitter would have been like a nonprofit, honestly, like a public good. And mm-hmm. it would have existed as this place for people to talk, express ideas, share things. But if it wasn't public or if it wasn't a for-profit company, there just wouldn't have been as much pressure to, you know, police the service, quite frankly, right? Because you're not trying to appease advertisers anymore. Mm -hmm. There wouldn't have been this pressure to, you know, launch things just to try and add user growth because you're trying to appease Wall Street investors. And so I think as time went on and he started to resent the fact that Twitter was sort of answering to advertisers or investors, two groups of people he didn't necessarily like want to be answering to, that he wishes he could have gone back in time and said, well, I wish this had just sort of been like a, an open protocol and a, a public good for people. But obviously, once the genie is out of the bottle, it's hard to go back and, and do something like that. And I kind of want to lay this groundwork here because I think it's really important to understand that complexity because sometimes I think it's painted out as, well, you know, Twitter under Jack Dorsey was this like really kind of ethical social media platform. You know, if you were known to be someone who was peddling misinformation, you were booted off or, you know, there was like a sense that like there was this public good for it. So, you know, we'll get to whether that still exists and how that relates to the Elon Musk story, because I think that there's like a Hollywood version of this where Jack is the hero trying to keep this company good. And then there's Elon Musk, who's the villain who's coming in and like bringing all the evil and monetizing it and charging people for the check mark and all this kind of stuff where that's really not true. Like there's... (laughs) There's all anyway. So yeah, I want to get to that part, but I think in order to understand how untrue that is, which was so shocking to me, we need to understand then too. Like once Jack was kind of booted out of the company in 2008, and then you know he sort of also then went and started Square. Yeah, 
which I, I didn't realize that that, I mean, I, I knew he was CEO of Square. I didn't realize it was like his idea and why. Yeah. So tell us about Square. Yeah, it's a fun story. And I kind of wonder because a lot of these companies, the founding stories sort of like go through the tumbler over time and what comes out is like this really polished version, right? That that sounds really nice. And mm-hmm. for, from everything I've heard, like I think this is mostly true, but it's this idea that he had this friend in St. Louis, which is where Jack is from. Uh, his friend was an artist as well. He was a glass blower. And the story goes that he had created this you know, glass faucet and someone reached out to him. It was very expensive and said, hey, I want to buy this. He was ecstatic. You know, He's going to sell some of his art. But he couldn't accept the woman's American Express card. So she basically said, well, never mind. I'm going to take my business somewhere else. And you know, there was this devastation, right? Like, oh, the sale... The sale fell through. Mm-hmm. If only I could accept this Amex card, I would have made you know thousands of dollars. And so he and Jack commiserate. And Jack has just recently been fired from Twitter. So he's sort of looking for something new. And they come up with this idea of saying, well, you're basically carrying a cash register in your pocket in the iPhone. We just need to be able to tell the credit, like get the credit card information onto the phone. So they create this little plug-in and they swipe the card and voila, the square business sort of exists. And now we all are probably familiar with it. You know, it shows up at coffee shops and at farmers markets and things like that. But this sort of genesis of this company started because Jack was fired from Twitter. Had he not been fired from Twitter, he wouldn't have had the free time. He wouldn't have been going back to St. Louis to commiserate with his friend and uh, Square would not have existed. And then we fast forward a little bit to 2015, where now Twitter is looking for a new CEO and Jack is the CEO of Square and very openly does not want to leave Square because they're about to go and and into an IPO. And so like if you know, if a CEO leaves a couple months before the IPO, (laughs) that's a disaster for the investors, including Jack, who was an investor. Yeah, right, right. So tell us now about sort of this next step where like, how did Jack convince the Twitter board that he could be CEO of two companies when they fired him first off for being an inept <laughs> right. CEO of one company? I mean, Square was really the big... Re- it's funny because it, it was not only the reason that he almost didn't get the job because he already had a full-time job, but it was the only reason that they were comfortable bringing him back to Twitter because they'd seen he'd built this thing at Square and they were like, oh, this guy who we fired in 2008 has really grown up. Like He's clearly able to you know build an entirely new large business. But Twitter's board at that time thought that the company's biggest issue was the product. They thought, okay, if we can make the product more compelling, we can jumpstart user growth, the business will follow, right? That is, it's pretty simple. And so they were looking for a product-minded CEO to come in and kind of give them that jolt. They were deciding between Jack Dorsey, who they considered the product guy, right? He's the co-founder of Twitter, and a guy by the name of Andy Jassy, who at the time, most people probably didn't know he was leading this division of Amazon called AWS. You may now know Andy Jassy is the CEO of Amazon, right? So they, they were considering this guy who's now had a ton of success at Amazon, but he was more of the business side of things. So they had Jack, the product guy. They had Andy, the business guy. They were trying to debate. And ultimately, they decided that even though Jack had another job and he was only going to be able to commit part of his time that he was a good enough product person that it was worth them bringing him on. So Jack gets brought back in 2015 to basically fix the Twitter product. And then he has two jobs for quite some time after that. But that was a big dilemma as to whether he could do two jobs at the same time. And I think that's really where, I mean, this is like in the run-up to 2016 and the election. And, you know, in some ways I see that as, I, th- I think that to me is where the, 
the second act of the Disney movie, the hero's journey story really begins where like now, like, you know, if you think about him, he's, he's really taking this company that's floundering and turning it into the superstar platform. So what, what was it in those years that Jack did particularly that led to this huge success of Twitter? Yeah, I think there was really one thing, which is he should get credit and did a good job of clarifying what Twitter was for, right? I think for a long time, Twitter existed and you probably had this. I know I had this discussion with people like they were like, what do I tweet? <laughs> what like, why would I sign up for Twitter? Like, I know it exists. I sort of know people, you know, talk about their breakfast on there or they talk about whatever. It didn't feel maybe that urgent. And I think in 2016, with the election upcoming, Twitter really focused on this idea of being live. I think the tagline, what's happening, came about at that point. It, Twitter's what's happening. And they really said, like, if it's happening in the world around you, it's happening on Twitter. And if you want to learn about it, you go to Twitter first to learn about it. And I thought that was really smart because it really crystallized that Twitter was essentially a news service. You know, it was the the place you went. If you're watching the debate between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton head to 2016, you're following along on Twitter because people are talking about it right there. And I thought that that was a huge reason for the turnaround. I think the fact that President Trump ultimately won and tweeted 25 times a day or whatever it was certainly didn't hurt either in terms of bringing Twitter some relevance. But I think ultimately what Jack did was he solidified where Twitter fit into the, the internet and into the world of, of culture and politics. And uh, he should get some credit for that, for sure. And th- that to me also, I think, was a real turning point where I started to feel like a lot of my news was coming from Twitter. And, I, and that if I wasn't on Twitter, I was somehow not keeping up with the pulse. And there wasn't a, an outlet or a news out, you know, a, a place where I could go where I felt that kind of immediacy of like, hey, what are people thinking about this right now? Yeah. And that's a massive change in terms of how we interact as a society. Well, like, what was your experience of that as somebody who covers, you know, tech and social media and the sea change in culture that happened around that time? I do think a big part of that was just the fact that there was a sitting U.S. president that was sort of running policy straight from his brain to his Twitter account oftentimes. And I remember when he got elected, President Trump got elected, we had been sort of covering his tweets like just he tweeted, we should write about the fact that he tweeted, right? And it was yeah. it was getting to the point where it was like, this is not sustainable. You know, he's <laughs> tweeting 20 times a day. And having to sit down with editors and sort of come up with almost like a totally new strategy for covering like a, a totally different way that a world leader was was interacting on this site. And I think what that did was it's just sort of set this weird example that, you know, Twitter was the place that things were announced and things got done. And and you needed to be there because you never know, knew when he was going to like threaten North Korea with nuclear war or something like that. And you wanted to see it first. So you're on Twitter. And I think that snowballed into other things. You know, the Me Too movement, for example, mm-hmm. was huge on Twitter, right? Yep. We saw even like the Charlottesville protests and the white nationalist protests. Those were sort of unfolding on Twitter as well. And so you just started seeing these really influential cultural moments happening first on Twitter And I think the 2016 election, you know, they'd happened before, but I think the 2016 election just sort of maybe ramped up the 
the urgency of those things. And um, it didn't take long, as you know, before it sort of just became like, if you cared about news, you had to be on Twitter because otherwise you were you were behind. Yeah. And, you know, there I, I remember there were kind of these growing pains, it seemed, from seasoned journalists. And maybe you were one of the ones that were experiencing yeah. this. Like, yeah, like, how do you how do you cover something that someone else has wrote written in 140 characters, but that has all this other impact? But then eventually I feel like media kind of figured it out and it kind of became a little bit more normalized. And you would see, you know, for example, if you're watching the news or, you know, you're you, you could see like a hashtag that is being called out or like, you can know, you know, you can. Yeah. There was a kind of more a less awkward inclusion of what's happening on Twitter in the news and in the media and kind of a mainstreaming of it, which is like weird to think about. Yeah, I think so. And I, I still don't know if we ever, we being the media, like really ever perfected it, mm-hmm. right? Uh, certainly it's like, on the one hand, you know, at the beginning, it'd be like, oh my gosh, the president of the United States like <laughs> tweeted something totally misogynistic, like we need to cover this. And then, you know, you fast forward a year and it's like, well, he does that quite regularly now. Like, do we even want to give this more attention right. than it already is getting? And what's actually interesting is the only other Twitter user that we've really gone through the same cycle with, in my opinion, is Elon Musk, which, you know, I'm sort of getting ahead of the story here. But there were moments, especially when he first started at Twitter, where he'd tweet something, you'd be like, oh my gosh, I can't (laughs) believe the owner of Twitter is saying this, like we have to cover it. And now he says stuff all the time that it's like, we just ignore because it's sort of like, well, he now does it all the time, but it also like, we don't want to sort of give more oxygen to some of these like negative things. And, you know, that's a that's a balance, right? Because especially when it's a president, like when it's President Trump, you're really trying to figure out like, you don't want to just ignore these terrible things that are being said or done. But you also it's like when they're happening as frequently as they are, you have to sort of figure out when to strike and when not to. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time because messes happen because... The charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh, Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. (laughs) No, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. So, I mean, let's fast forward a little bit to the point where I remember when I was like experiencing the the news cycle of Elon Musk is wants to buy Twitter and then like mm-hmm. he's gonna pay this much, but no, he can't get the money. And there was like those months of like then him saying how terrible Twitter was, and it was like this whole weird thing. And the thing that I didn't know was that Jack had wanted that he had lobbied Elon mm-hmm. to buy the company to begin with. And in my head, it was just like this kind of hostile takeover from Elon because he was pissed that, you know, people were tracking his plane or something. Right. 
But right, pretty close. Like, yeah. So, I mean, so tell us about like, like what, yeah. How did that unfold? I mean, like we could, we, I guess we should start with the whole Elon jet tracking thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then like, where does Jack come into the story? And sure. So uh, we'll start with the Elon jet thing. And this is because this was something as far as I'm aware was new in the book, but Elon has sort of a long history of complaining about Twitter to first Jack Dorsey when he was still there. And then when Jack left, his uh, successor, Parag Agrawal. And in January of 2022, one of those complaints was that this Elon Jet account existed on Twitter that was tracking his plane. And Elon hated this. He wanted Twitter to take it down. And Parag essentially ignored the request or at the very least, like did not follow through on it. And why that's super interesting is within a couple of days or, or weeks, Elon started buying Twitter stock. And we can't say for certain, I certainly can't say for certain that he bought the Twitter stock because of this Elon Jet situation. But I think if you know Elon, and I've talked to a lot of people who were involved in this, like there's a lot of speculation that he thought owning a big chunk of Twitter would help him sort of lobby the company to do something about this account. And that the whole thing sort of snowballed from there, right? Like then he was going to join the board. And then all of a sudden, like Jack Dorsey's talking to him and saying, hey, you know, don't just join the board. Like, you can take this thing private and fix it, you know? And and voila, two months later, he's the owner of Twitter. So it's a really interesting thing. And I think, you know, you mentioned the Jack relationship. I think what people need to know is that Jack Dorsey was an Elon admirer. And he he really thought that Elon was a phenomenal, not only a phenomenal tweeter, he, he used to describe him as his favorite Twitter user, but he just like admired what he was doing with Tesla, admired what he was doing with SpaceX. He thought he was just like changing the world. And so when Elon showed up as Twitter's largest shareholder to Jack Dorsey, a guy who, as we talked about, thought that, you know, the company's original sin was being publicly traded. He saw this opportunity to say the best tweeter, the richest man in the world is now our largest shareholder. And if anyone can take this company private and sort of get us off of this Wall Street hamster wheel, it's Elon Musk. And uh, he was very excited to kind of encourage that to happen. And that's the part where I feel like, okay, so now because Elon is uh, defies prediction. Yeah. <laughs> it's like unclear in my, like when I'm trying to understand, put myself in Jack's shoes. And by then I was not a big Elon admirer because of a lot of the stances that he took just like were contrary to my own values. But can you give us a sense of why he thought Elon would not be about money? Like why, like, what, like that's yeah. the, the part that I'm not clear on. Like if, if Jack really wanted this to be a public good yeah, and Elon's coming in and, and buying it for a bunch of, but clearly needs to make, borrow that money to, yeah. you know, like how, how did he think that this was not going to become all about the money? I kind of maybe would push back slightly because I don't think it's all about the money right now. Hmm which is a problem actually, because I think the fact that it's not about the money is sort of an issue. Like the business is doing really poorly. And that makes me wonder like, how long can Elon sort of pay this thing out of pocket and be content with it? But let's create an alternate universe real quick where Elon takes Twitter private. He does the tough things, right? He, he lays off a good chunk of the staff. Twitter was going to do that anyway, by the way. I'm not saying that would have been easy. And I'm not saying that he handled it the way that I think anyone should handle layoffs. But I think from a business standpoint, actually laying people off was, was something that Twitter was going to do whether he got there or not. So if he takes it private, he maybe you know tightens up the business a little bit, but continues to run it in much the same way business-wise that it had run before, you would now have like a profitable company, but without the public 
pressure of quarterly earnings without like, hey, you know, every time an advertiser leaves, the stock price is taking a hit or something. And it sort of would have freed him up to maybe do this quote unquote free speech thing that he wanted to do. I think the problem is, was that he took it private. He dramatically cut costs because he took out too much debt. So he went a little bit too hardcore there. And then on top of that, he ran off all the advertisers so quickly that it sort of created this like untenable business situation. So again, I realize this is like an alternate universe situation where he would have had to do several things differently. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I don't think it's that crazy to say, okay, if you took the exact same Twitter we knew from two years ago, but you simply made it a private company instead of a public company, that would have freed them up to loosen up a lot of their speech-related things, I think, in a way that Elon and Jack, quite frankly, wanted to do. They just sort of mishandled it, in my opinion. All right. So let's talk about what happened. <laughs> Twitter under Elon. And again, like it's, it's reading your book that makes me feel like, wow, I, I still don't really get to have a handle on yeah. what, what's all going on now. But I can certainly say that like before I read your book, my impression was this platform is losing users. It's like going away from what I really liked about it, which is that I could tell the app who I wanted to follow. And then I yeah. would see that. Now I feel like it's much more like some of these other social media platforms where it's just pushing out content to me and I don't have as much control over what it is that I see, which makes me as a content creator less willing to use it because I feel like it doesn't really matter how good the content is that I create. It's like some algorithm that's going to you know feed it out to people or not. And so I have much less control over building a followership or creating a good account. So is that true? What's happening? You know, how did we get here? I know those are all like a million big questions, um, but... <laughs> no, I know. It's, but, it is hard. I feel the same way for what it's worth. I mean, like my, my for you timeline. So now there's, there's two timelines, right? There's like the algorithm driven one. And then there's the one that's just people you follow in, in chronological order. To be clear, there was always an algorithm timeline. They would inject some right. stuff for you from people you didn't follow. But I think it was a smaller percentage. And there also wasn't this pay-to-play situation that exists now, which is like, yeah. if you are willing to pay $8 and be a subscriber to X, you get preferential treatment in the feed, quite frankly. So you, what you're probably seeing is a lot more content from people who are just paying customers and less content from you know, perhaps really good or interesting content creators who aren't paying the company. I know for me, my experience has changed dramatically. Like I used to use, I talked about how important Twitter was for news. I don't want to say it's unusable for news because I still get some value, but it's certainly not as valuable as it was. Like my feed doesn't have nearly the timeliness that it did around news. It feels more like an entertainment feed. Like it's just trying to lure you in with like, I get, I don't know what you get. I get a bunch of weird, like historical, like this video from 18, you're like 1920 has been <laughs> colorized and like now you can see what it was. And I'm like, okay, like, am I watching the History Channel or like what is going on here? So to me, this all comes back to Elon Musk's sort of disdain for the mass media and the mainstream media. And every change he's made to me feels like it's intended to make X or Twitter less relevant and helpful to those people because I think he's sort of just disagrees with a lot that the media has done, especially how they covered him. And, you know, I'm happy to get into this a little bit more. I don't want to like keep rambling here, but I just think like, it's clear he's not a fan of the mainstream media. 
And I feel like a lot of the decisions she's made with X since taking over have been to take the power from journalists away on the platform. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly sort of been my experience that I I don't find it as relevant anymore or as informative. And I just don't feel like it's as necessary. But again, there isn't something that I've found that has taken its place. I mean, so let's talk about what now? Like, how do we fill this void that Twitter, the changes like have have created? I still have a hard time calling it X. Yeah. (laughs) And we didn't know we needed, right? Like... (laughs) Before Twitter, it was like people weren't like, oh, I need to like know what the pulse is in this like kind of crowdsourced way. But now I feel like I'm I miss it and I'm not really quite sure. And then there's all these other, you know, a lot of the other platforms too, like TikTok has become a, a, a primary platform for a lot of people. And it is entirely about pushing out content. There right. is very little kind of engagement there. So what do you think has been X's role in this changing landscape of how we use social media? Are we returning back to a model where we're just passive consumers rather than active curators? Where are we going? It kind of feels that way. Although I would point out that on almost every social platform, everyone that I can think of, the vast majority of users on there are passive consumers, Mm -hmm. right? We think of Twitter, I think, is maybe feeling different, probably because, again, the people you're following are actually posting content, which is what you're seeing. But but really the Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, all of those platforms, like I don't know, I'm yeah, I'm making this number up, but it's, we'll say 99% of, of users of these services are just consuming. They're not actually creating. And I think with X, what's, you mentioned something, you said it doesn't feel necessary anymore. And that's the thing. That's what made X so good was that if you cared about news, you felt like you had to be on Twitter. And it doesn't feel that way anymore. I agree with you. Mm. But nothing else feels that way either, right? right? And I think as someone who, gosh, has spent the last decade tweeting about the news and tweeting my stories and interacting with other people about the news, I don't even know where to go myself. And that's maybe the problem, right? Is like people who are newsmakers or, or reporters or journalists, they're not really sure exactly where they should be posting. So I'm like posting on X, I'm posting on threads, I'm posting on Blue Sky, I'm on LinkedIn. <laughs> it's sort of like, where are, where, where'd we settle on? You know, and I, so I agree with you, it's splintered and there's no clear winner. So as a result, you sort of get like, people are picking and choosing, but you're not getting the mass migration to any one of these things. And as a result, none of them feel urgent or necessary to me either. Yeah, I mean, I think the closest is probably LinkedIn as kind of, yeah. but, you know, it has its own businessy, totally different vibe and different audience, etc. But I, I'm really wondering, you know, we're coming up into another election year. This is going to be another battle between social media platforms in a sense. And yet there isn't a centralized place as you, yeah. as you do you think people are going to come back to X <laughs> because of the political scene? Um, no, not really. <laughs> I mean, I, We'll be interested to see what Donald Trump ultimately ends up doing. He's like mm-hmm. back on X, but not really, as you know. He's still mostly posting to truth and um, truth social, that is. And him coming back in full force, at the very least, would probably bring the media attention back to X in a different way than we see it right now. Mm-hmm. And that might be the kind of like a, a bit of a domino effect, right? But otherwise, it it just feels quite combative sometimes. I don't know how you feel, but like when I'm on X, it feels really combative. And, oh yeah, you know, I don't really necessarily want to go and like have a, a discussion about every single hot button election issue. 
I'm not sure that other people do either. So it'll be interesting to see, like, do people just go back and, and, you know, are they less informed? Are they more informed? Because now maybe they're getting their information from a newspaper. I don't know. Do people read the news anymore? Are they going to, to, to TV news? I don't have a good answer for you, but I just don't see what could happen in the next, you know, six months that's going to dramatically change where X feels like it fits in this ecosystem. Unless perhaps, like I said, President Trump comes back and tweets 25 times a day. And that would only be because it would bring the media back to cover that. And that might sort of be a snowball thing. Yeah. One of the things that I find really interesting about this moment is that in the past where you've had a sea change in culture that's driven by some new tech innovation, it's because a new player has come on the scene. Mm -hmm. And then it's sort of like, oh, then then it's like the question is, is this new player going to, how much of the market is it going to take on like Clubhouse as an example? Like, are we now all going to spend our time on Clubhouse? And like that didn't quite pan out. This is almost like the absence or the demise of a platform that is causing the cultural change. And I feel like, yeah, there's like a kind of sense of being adrift that I haven't seen in other times. Yeah. I mean, it's it's created a vacuum for sure. You know, like I said, to me, it's it feels very splintered right now. You mentioned LinkedIn. I Don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't think like people are going to say, hey, I wonder what's going on at tonight's debate. I'm going to tune into LinkedIn to find <laughs> out, right? That's just not right. what it's for. Right. But you have seen what Twitter's sort of, you know, change has done, which is it has like forced people to go explore other things. Do you use threads at all? I'm curious, like threads is... I do use yeah. threads. Yeah, but uh, threads feels the closest in, in that way. But it also I was gonna say. feels like the biggest mountain because, you know, I already like I've been on LinkedIn for years. So I already yeah. have. Yeah, I found my followers. I, you know, and it's like, same thing, you know, so I, but I feel like from threads, like it's just been really hard to find the people that, I mean, totally. they're just getting easier, but yes, I, I think that's probably the place that people are going to end up. And that's one of the reasons I sort of put a little bit more effort into threads than I would have yeah. otherwise. And I'm sure why, like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg created threads or whoever yeah. it was at Instagram that did, right? I mean, threads to me feels the closest to what we had at Twitter, yet I still don't feel it's like Twitter. It's like nice Twitter. I feel, yes. uh, you know, yes. I, I can post on threads and like, I feel like people are going to be nice to me, which <laughs> is a, a cool feeling, quite frankly, because it's like, it's, it's quite enjoyable to have a, a nice thing. But as a result, you also, I also don't feel like I'm having like the meaningful discussions there. Right. So it's like, right. Yeah. I feel like I can share my news there, but I don't think I'm going to have like the same sort of intense intensity or the same seriousness that I did with with Twitter a few years ago around certain issues. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it'll ever be replicated, to be honest with you, because I feel I've thought about this a lot. And what made Twitter super unique was, again, this urgency, this feeling that we all needed to be there. I don't know if you could convince people that they need to be anywhere in 2024. Right. And so Twitter benefited from the fact that it started in like 2000 or not started, of course, but sort of like started to really pick up in 2012, 13, 14. Yeah. Because that was a time when people were willing to say, whoa, I need to be on this, this social network. I just think the social scene has changed so much that like, I don't, I don't know. I don't think you could convince people they have to be anywhere. And so as a result, you're never going to get that same collection of, of people in one place again. Yeah. I mean, I, I, ha- I have the same feeling about, about threads and it's interesting because but I still find it difficult to be serious on there because to me, it's still tied to Instagram, which yeah. is like the whole like Instagrammable as an adjective to me does not 
equate with seriousness or yeah. like critical thinking or, you know, it's more like beauty, aesthetics. Right. And I don't know if you've followed what Instagram has even said about threads, but Adam Masseri, the head of Instagram, has basically said like, they don't really want threads to be a place for politics. Yeah. And it's like, okay, that's totally fine. But then it's never going to be a Twitter replacement because quite frankly, that's like right. Twitter was a place for politics and it was a place to go discuss yep. these important issues happening. So if Threads isn't willing to lean into that, and in fact, you know, I don't know exactly what they're doing with the algorithm, but if they're going to take anything that's political and sort of, you know, demote it in the feed or something like that, it's just never going to have the same feeling as Twitter, which is okay. Like, I don't think we're all sitting here saying, you know, Twitter had its ma massive flaws mm -hmm. for sure, but you know, it's not going to have the, the use cases as well. So it sounds like we don't really have a clear vision of what the landscape is going to be like in the next few years. But maybe there's one more person we can come back to. And like, what is Jack going to do next? Like, yeah. <laughs> what do you think yeah. is going to be his next big thing? He's focused on two things right now. One, since we're talking social media, I'll start there, which is a decentralized social media you may be on Blue Sky or heard of Blue Sky. Jack's on the board there. It's no longer his, he's not running it or anything, but it was sort of his, uh, his baby when he was at Twitter before he left. And again, it's this idea of like social media, but without the centralized control of a single company. And hopefully if they do it right to most consumers, it'll feel just like normal social media. Like, it, you know, you'll, you'll log in and, and it'll feel like you're on Twitter or, or Facebook or Instagram or whatever. But the behind the scenes stuff will be handled in a very different way because everything is open source and the risk of like getting too technical. Basically, you don't have a single company making all the rules. That's what he's focused on on the social media front. Beyond that, though, he's super interested in Bitcoin right now. And given that he's still running Block, uh, which was Square, now it's Block, that makes a lot of sense. It's a you know financial thing. But there's a lot of overlap in Bitcoin and Blue Sky, they're both decentralized sort of versions of one's a, a social network and one's a currency. And so Jack is like right now, very into sort of eliminating any level of company control over these things, government control, company control. And so that seems to be where he's spending most of his time these days, which is it. But he's, he's not nearly as visible as he used to be. I'm sure you maybe haven't seen or heard from him much. Mm -hmm. He's, um, I don't want to say he's hiding out, but he's definitely not putting himself out there in the way that he used to. And maybe that is sort of where, where we're headed, the true promise of decentralization, you know, where in some ways I feel like the Bitcoin promise never really hasn't yet come to its full fruition. We know right. the whole FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried story and where it falls in and how now it's like becoming more regulated. But maybe there's still hope for some other ways that decentralization is going to become a, a bigger part of our lives. I think so. I'm not ready to write it off yet by any stretch. I do think it's a a really idealistic way of of viewing these things, especially given Meta's place in, in the world and dominance in social networking right now, like the idea of sort of this new scrappy decentralized thing cropping up and somehow taking a meaningful market share is hard for me to believe. I think like what people forget is the power of, you know, the social graph, right? And this idea that, I mean, you you were even talking about it with threads. It's kind of like, you got to start over and like, oh, how do you find the people you want to find? And like, how do you build your following? It's a lot of work. And for a lot of people, it's easier to just stay at the place where they've already built a following or where they already sort of know what to expect. And um, that's why 
competing in social media is really hard is, is you got to really build that network back up and you have to have people patient enough to do it. And, um, you know, blue sky could, or, or some other decentralized network could certainly do it. I think it's an interesting idea. I'm not going to write it off, but I'm also not super optimistic that, that they're going to convince the, the masses to move anywhere else. Well, I want to remind our listeners that Kurt Wagner's book, Battle for the Bird, Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk, and the $44 billion fight for Twitter's soul is now available at booksellers everywhere. Kurt, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you want to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Yushi Lin, Jay Henry, Joel, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Podigy. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. 